Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. My next guest has had a richly varied and extraordinarily successful career. Educated at Winchester and Bristol University where he graduated with a first in politics, he then uh, bestrode the journalism firmament like something of a colossus for, for many years, uh, published in all the major organs. He has been involved in gambling since he was eight years old. We'll come to that in a few moments' time. He's also been heavily involved in horse racing as an owner and as a breeder, latterly as a board member of the British Horse Racing Authority. In addition, in 1985, he was named Computer Brain of the Year and in 2000, one of the Young Business Meteors of the Year. Chair of the BHA should then be a bit of a doddle, shouldn't it? That's what you think, Joe Somero-Smith. Welcome to Luck on Sunday. Thank you. It's been quite, it's been quite an, active, an active few decades, hasn't it? Uh, I've done a lot of different things, definitely. Um, but, uh, yeah, horse racing is going to be an interesting challenge. Your most difficult challenge yet? I suspect so, yes. And why do you think that is? I think we're, the industry's at a fairly difficult time, um, trying to draw everybody together. Um, I mean, I knew what I was getting myself into, but the first three months of, of the job, you suddenly uh, discover quite how many different opinions there are. And obviously, everybody's running a completely different business model across the sport. So trying to find compromises that uh, suit everybody is really quite hard, a hard job. Let me, just, let me just dial it all back and, and try and understand a bit about, about you as, as Joe Somerez-Smith, because you're going to be talked about an awful lot, but, but people might not know an awful lot about what, what really drives you as a, as, a, as a man. So take me back to, to, to the early days. You say that, that you started gambling at, at the age of eight. Was, that was a, a family passion instilled in you? Not at all. It's not a family thing at all. Uh, but I had a maths teacher who taught us fractions using betting odds and then ran a tipping contest. So I was there sitting with the sporting life every morning on, on the way into school, uh, picking out winners. I think it was probably a shortcut for him to find uh, winners himself. <laughs> I, I don't think it could ever happen in a school now. But um, it was, uh, you know, it was something that I... I really got massively into um, and uh, I think spent most of my school years sitting in a betting shop uh, in the afternoons um, and uh, then uh, worked for the Racing Post while I was at university. And you were at Bristol yes. University yeah. working for the Racing Post. You were spotlight writing as well. Uh, I was, yes. I was uh, um, sort of doing, I was given the, the sort of lowest grade of horses to do spotlight writing uh, and gradually sort of worked myself up to Slightly higher, but not, you know, um, they, they gave me always the, the worst meeting of the day to look at. And, um, and then there was a lot of rewriting of it um, when I got things wrong. When you were writing spotlights for those low-grade meetings, were you even then thinking, there's far too much racing, we need to get rid of a few of these fixtures? Um, no, I don't think I was at that time. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I was on the Jockey Club graduate programme, mm. and um, that was in the second year. Uh, and there's actually a lot of people from that, from that group still in the industry, people, um, Simon Clare, for example, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Wayman, um, Clare Shepherd. Um, but um, a lot of the things that were there 30 years ago were the, the same problems that sort of I'm being asked to deal with now. You obviously had this facility for numbers um, and, and enjoyed the mathematical side of, uh, of betting. Was it always horse racing for you? Was horse racing the most interesting and exciting you know, exposition of that? 
Um, no, it really was. I mean, I, it, horse racing was the the sport that I started with. I got very involved. I mean, I had a few years where I basically made a living from gambling, and that was on anything where I thought I had a mathematical edge. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is, I'm guessing, why you could have a career as a as a journalist at the same time, because you were making all your money gambling. Um, it, it helped, but, mm. um, yeah, I mean, after that, I had a sort of three-year period um, uh, in which I just, in, in all I did was was bet on, I mean, it was, it was everything from Formula One, football, lots of arbitrage between the uh, European and Asian markets. Um, but horse racing was always sort of 67% to 70% of my turnover. Do you think that gives you an edge in terms of the role that you're trying to do now, understanding things from a punter's point of view, from a bookmaker's point of view, from a trader's point of view? I, th- I, I hope that it helps that I've seen all aspects of the sport, that I've been involved in it, you know, that I have had bloodstock interests or still do actually. Uh, I've owned horses for quite a long time. I, I, you know, I hope, hope that, that I can have the perspective of, of, of all different consumers and participants in the sport. It's quite interesting that because there was a period, I don't, you'll have to tell me what the rules are now, but I know there has been a period where all BHA employees uh, and people involved with the organisation aren't allowed to own horses or have significant skin in the game. What's the policy at the moment? Um, so the policy is we're not allowed to gamble at all. So if you work for the BHA, you cannot bet on horse racing anywhere worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of ownership, um, there was pressure on us at one point. So at no point has BHA... Uh, ever been not allowed to own horses, but it has been. But there sort was of internally frowned upon. The, at one there point. was there was pressure at one point um, uh, where people were saying, if you if you own horses, the perception will be that you're biased towards the ROA and owners, and and then lots of people saying in the sport, well, if you if you don't know the pain and the joy <laughs> of owning horses, then how can you really have a perspective on the sport? Mm. So I think you know, obviously, if I had a string of a hundred horses. I mean, I'd be delighted to do that, but um, it probably would be conflicted with my role of chair, whereas, you know, I've got, uh, well, at the start of the week, I had five in training. I've now got three in training. We've retired two this week, um, and I've, got, I've still got some uh, store horses. But I don't think that, certainly, that they're running at the level that it's going to affect any of my decision-making. Would you like to have 100 horses in training in your fantasy world? Uh, it would be fantastic, but um, I would need to uh, have a windfall some from somewhere um, which doesn't seem likely in the short term. Um, so, chair of the BHA, why did you take up the, the position? I absolutely love horse racing. Um, I've been on the board for seven years. I understand the challenges that we're facing. Um, and um, I, th- I think there's a lot that I can, tri- can contribute um, and help move the sport forward. So one of the things that I've been saying in, in the first three months going around the industry is how do we make the sport investable? Um, and I say that because about four years ago, one of the big private equity houses came and started looking at horse racing uh, in the same way that other private equity houses have looked at Formula One or Rugby Union. And they went round and they talked to all the sort of leading people in the sport and effectively, they, and I introduced them into a lot of people as, as a board member, and they came back and said, as horse racing currently stands, we don't feel it's investable. In the same way that they would like, they, you know, partly it was the structures of the sport and the governance, how would they actually get the things that they wanted to do Yeah, done. I was going to ask you, what were they trying to invest in? Well, they, they believed that there's the, 
things could be done to transform and grow the sport mm. where there was a business opportunity for them. That was the, the sort of starting thesis. But when they came in and they looked at, at actually how, it, how we run everything, what the decision making is, how would you, you know, if you want to, if you want to change things like the race programme, who would actually do that? Um, they, would, they basically came back and said, it's too difficult. And I'd like to, you know, when I stopped being chair, I would like to have left the sport in a, a more investable um, position than it was when I started. How do you do that? Well, we have the strategy days uh, coming up on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, uh, which is the start of an ongoing process. But it's about getting everybody in the industry to sit together and say, how do we grow this? Do, you know, what is our vision? Do we have a vision that we want the sport to be you know, double revenues in real terms in 10 years' time or five years' time? Uh, how do we make sure that from an equine welfare point of view that we, uh, the sport is sustainable? Um, there's lots and lots. How do we get a younger audience in? Um, I don't know if you were at the racing conference at Newbury that the, the Racing Foundation did, but um, Professor David Forrest from the University of Liverpool did a, a presentation that still worries me a huge amount mm. about the demographics of people who bet on horse racing. And essentially, we have, if you're over the age of 50 and you bet on horse racing, about 75% of your turnover is on horse racing and the rest is largely on football. If you're under 30 and you bet on horse racing, only 25% of your turnover is on horse racing, about 70% is on football. That has got to, you know, that is a major worry to the sport. If we don't have people betting on the sport in 20 years' time, we're in trouble. So how do we change that? And, uh, you know, my son is an Arsenal fan. Uh, he's uh, 14 tomorrow. Uh, Arsenal started engaging him when he was four. But horse racing doesn't... How, how, did the, how were they doing that? Well, through outreach into the schools. So we live, we live in, a, in local schools. Um, you know, things like uh, the mass... You know, Gunnosaurus, for example... I mean, hilariously, he went to Arsenal when he was about five, and there were two or three first-team players. But all these little kids, all they wanted to do was meet Gunnosaurus. Um, I, you know, I'm not saying that horse racing needs needs a Gunnosaurus, but what I'm saying is that they, the, the well, club. Why not? If you're at if you're at Kempton or Sandown, why aren't you going in all around the schools? Well, exactly, and 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 too often. I mean, there are there are race courses that do really good jobs, but too often. We wait until people can drink and gamble. You don't gamble. need mascots, you've got real animals. Yeah, the, but we wait until people can drink and gamble. Mm. And that's too late. And, you know, I, if you look on social media, for Not example... for you, you started gambling at eight. Yes, I'm, <laughs> the world has slightly changed. But, that, but I'm, being, I, I'm only being a tiny bit facetious there. Yeah. Because you got engaged in the idea of numbers and gambling and something quite cerebral very early on. Now, I know you're an academic guy. I know you're, you're an intellectual person. But why shouldn't we be trying to engage people on that level at an early Well, I absolutely agree with that. And um, I think some of the things that work, the way we present things, so that, for example, the way form is presented, is still the way that, if you look at a race card from 1935... Mm. It's still we, the same. We still present it exactly the same way. But how can we expect somebody in the, you know, 15 to consume things in the way that, that you did in 1935? It's, it's really... We've got... To, you know, these are all areas to reform. But we need... We need to find ways that everybody in the sport is mm. sitting there with the same sense of urgency because otherwise we just keep doing the same thing over and over again and not growing the sport. But dare I say it, there hasn't been a great sense of urgency in the last 18 months or so. And 
we could have had this conversation a year ago and you could have said the same thing and we're now waiting until this week until there is an an industry stop it why is it taken this long to get all the parties for a for a strategy consultation um well obviously i only started the job on the first of june but um a lot of what we've had to do so there's been huge amounts of preparation work for this in in the last three months mm-hmm. and a lot of that has been drawing the data together to actually agree what you know, what is the single version of the truth on data? So one of the you know one of the things I find frustrating about the sport is that um, nobody can agree about what data is right. And if you're going to do data-driven, evidence-based policy making, mm-hmm. you need everybody to agree what the you know what is the data, what is the you know media rights landscape. If you're betting on uh, you know if, if you're going to change the race program. We need all the betting data married, it, married up with the, with the race programme, with the media rights, so that you can actually model it and you can say, well, if you remove these particular races, what's it going to do to the revenues of the sport? And at the moment, we don't have that model. So it's about building that. Um, and we're getting, we're getting closer yeah, with that. How long is it going to take to build that model? Well, if you can't do anything without building the model, is this counting? No, so keep I'm, I'm, hoping that, I'm hoping that... You know, the, we will be able to find some sort of short-term sticking plasters, but the long-term, the medium to long-term, uh, how we change the sport needs to be based on data. Absolutely, and I have. You know, it is it's a sort of pet area of, of, of my sort of passion of, of, of how how we do this, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, all Joe talks about is data, 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 but it really is important. But who's going to do it? So the BHA. Um, I mean, I think one of the criticisms of the BHA often is uh, the industry tells the BHA, this is what you want to do, and then how do you deliver it? So um, one of the things that Julie and I have been focusing on Mm -hmm. is building a a project management capability, so a change delivery unit within the BHA, so uh, led by Alison Nentiknap, and she is building a, a really excellent team so that when, when the industry says, this is what we want the BHA to do, we can actually deliver on that. So how is that different from before? Well, I think it's more... Because I, I, and I, 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 I know Alison, I've worked with her. Yeah. Um, she's an excellent uh, operator, change delivery unit, director of change and strategy. It all sounds a bit W1A. Um, <laughs> and, and people might be thinking, what, is, what does this actually mean? Well, I think that you know, there's, a, there's the business as, business as usual of, of running racing, which mm. is what the BHA has to go, get on with. But... Too often it has been that um, the people who are doing the business as usual are also expected to deliver on these big projects for okay. the industry. And so that's what's, you know, and I think that the RCA and, and the Thoroughbred Group have both recognised this and said, actually, we'd like the BHA to do this, we'd like you to have the personnel to do it, and we'd like to be able to measure whether, you've, whether you are actually delivering it or not. So it's a bit of a... Bit of a um, so this is the delivery unit, and... Sort of th- racing's many think tanks will feed into this and say, right, now you guys have got to get, get this activated. Well, that's the idea, and we, and we need to be measured as well. I mean, I think too often um, the, you know, the industry has said, well, we'd like the BHA to get on with this, uh, but we haven't, been able to, right. we haven't been able to do it. Does this now mean that you've got agreement from all parties and you have some sort of mandate to govern? Well, well that's the question I asked you when you first took the job. Absolutely, and that is what we are putting in place at the moment. So we have been working on the governance. I mean, it's, it's been going on since the start of January. Mm. 
It is now in the final stages of lawyers. Uh, there's one small point on uh, a tiny bit on what can, can constitutes a conflict at the BHA board, but with a bit of luck, um, it will all be completed and signed off. Uh, uh, so to go to the BHA board on the 7th of October and then to go to the thoroughbred group and the RCA okay. for approval. So by the end of October... I hope that there will we have, be a new governance structure I hope we for have a new governance. by the end of yes. October, and it will replace the existing tripartite structure. That is the hope. And it will give the BHA more power to lead. It, that is the idea of it, yes. Okay, with you at the helm as chair and Julie Harrington as the chief executive. Exactly, yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you assess Julie Harrington's skills as a chief executive from your position as I chair? I think she's, she's been fantastic. I mean, she's obviously come in at an you know, incredibly difficult time. She was in the job for all of seven weeks before we suddenly have, had a pandemic to deal with. Um, she, you know, she had a lot of things that she was planning to do in terms of the reorganisation of the uh, within the BHA and the prioritisations, mm-hmm. which she had to put on, uh, you know, put on hold while we got through the pandemic. Um, but she is, uh, you know, I, I, I think. You know, she's been interviewing people pretty much non-stop for about the last three months, it feels like, uh, to to build that sort of yeah. bench strength. And, uh, no, I think she's doing a great job. And I think if you talk to other leaders in the sport, they would agree with that as well. Uh, one of the, the key points of the last few months was when she voted against the BHA's own proposal to take 300 races off the fixture list, which caused the most significant fissure amongst all sorts of different groups. It was all cascading the, the, the fissures within the sport. So from the top down, the NTF weren't agreeing with the ROA and ARC and Jockey Club weren't agreeing with, with the, each other. Yeah. Uh, and the independent racecourses weren't agreeing with either of them. And then there was a, a vote and, and the whole thing got taken down. Um, she then said to sort of paraphrase your, your point, that this was not the time for a sticking plaster, this is time for, for a long-term strategy. Uh, are, are those stakeholders that were unhappy with the BHA's position then happier with what you're doing now? I've spent a lot of time trying to explain why we did that, and, and, and it was definitely we, it wasn't just Julie. No. And I, I take absolute responsibility for that as well. Um, I, think that, I think that people understand. I, I, they don't agree but they understand why we did it. And hopefully the, the strategies this meetings this week will allow us to, you know, uh, to work together. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that um, you talk to, uh, to those industry leaders and they say, they are saying, when we work together, we do better. You know, through the pandemic, when we actually all work together, good things came out of that. Mm. Um, and it didn't take long for it all to fall apart, though, did it? No, but I'm hoping that, um, I mean, we probably, you know, I would say that as the BHA that probably I didn't handle it as sensitively as I should have. Uh, and I've had to do, you know, a certain amount of work to, to um, reassure people that, you know, what, what we are doing is while we were not taking those uh, 200, 250 races out, mm. it doesn't mean that we don't want to do anything. We just want to, do, you know, we want to do it in a in a way that... In a wholesale, more strategic fashion exactly. with a proper plan. Yeah. Right, so is fewer fixtures the answer? Probably, but I don't know because this is, a, you know, this is the data uh, is what needs to support that. So 
it feels to me that pretty much everybody in the industry is saying fewer fixtures. Well, Simon Clare, you know, you were talking about earlier, yeah. you've known for 30 years, maybe more. He was saying there is violent agreement in the industry. Is that true? Do, 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 do ARC want fewer fixtures? Do the Jockey Club want fewer fixtures? Yes, according to Nevin Truesdale. But do, do all racecourses want fewer fixtures? I don't think all do, but I think that some may be willing to make some uh, short-term sacrifices for long-term gain, and we'll find out more this week. Um, I, I keep saying, you know, people are... And does your, does people your, are new, talking, stru people does your are talking new structure, Joe, at the end of October, when it's all rubber-stamped and you've got your new structure, does that enable you to then say, right, you've got to take some pain for it longer It should term, enable yeah. us to make some tough decisions, but we, have to, we also have to work within the, uh, the legal framework that I've been dealt. Yeah, that we were talking um, about from 2003. And, and uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, I suspect some of that may be tested um, about what, what our powers are legally. Are you prepared to push the boundaries there? I think I'd much rather do it by negotiation than do it through lawyers. Um, and I think what, you know, what would be sensible is that we have that data that everybody can sit there and say, OK, this is what the, the, the fixtures and the race programme should look like uh, to optimise the growth of the sport. Um, what that looks like, I'm not certain yet. But you, you'd, you know, I would pretty much say that 90% of the sport says that that is reducing fixtures. Uh, Peter Savile's plan yes. is something that I feel that you are sympathetic towards, i.e. the premierisation of the sport. So really burnishing those big fixtures, making a big fuss of the weekend, Saturdays making Sundays a big thing on ITV, not necessarily saying go fend for yourselves the smaller fixtures, trying to incentivise those and not necessarily reducing the amount of fixtures so you still have the overall volume to, to bolster the, the levy and to continue to, to feed your media rights income stream. That, I think, is a reasonable pricey of Peter Savile's plan, correct me if I'm wrong. Is yeah. that something you're sympathetic with? Because uh, that doesn't necessarily mean cutting fixtures. No, there's a, there's a lot in the Savile, Savile proposals that um, I think most of the industry can get behind. I don't, I don't think a lot of it is very controversial, it's, but a lot of it is, uh, you know, how do you implement it, what are the details, when, do, you know, are there elements of it that we can incorporate in 2023? Uh, his, his proposal is to wait till 2024, mm. but I think there's some really good things in there that, you know, that we should, you know, and we will be discussing next week. So he is, he is presenting to the group on Tuesday afternoon. Um, and I think that you know, there are a lot of people in the room who have been involved in the, pre in the preparation of that yeah, work. That's what I was going to say. Like his, his group, if you like, of, yeah. of people who are involved, race, senior race course representatives, senior trainers, horsemen, owners, breeders, whatever, they're kind of a similar group to the group that you're trying to, to assemble. What I can't quite work out is why it's taken an ex-BHB chairman to come out of retirement effectively to provide some sort of plan that the BHA should have been doing for the last two years. And he's kind of pro-BHA now as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've, I've said publicly that I'm very much grateful to Peter for the work mm. that he's done and that there are other, you know, things like John Hughes's work. Mm. Um, it's all very helpful, but what we need to do is bring together the people who, uh, you know, all the race courses and, and the members of the Thoroughbred group to get everybody in a room to actually agree it. Um, and uh, the BHA, you know, Peter, I think, would say that the BHA is best placed to do that. So that's what we're doing. What do you make of the of the thoroughbred, the thoroughbred group as a 
as an entity. It's a, it's a curious one, isn't it? With apparently quite a lot of, of power, but not much in the way of um, structure behind it. If you look at the, the race courses, the Race Course Association, this big group of huge commercial organisations and the thoroughbred group sort of put together rather um, higgledy-piggledy and Heath Robinson sort of trying to get their, their message out there. It, it's not really a satisfactory structure, is it? Or not, not a satisfactory balance of... It isn't. The way interests are it isn't because um, it would be better if they did have an executive. I mean, in the past, they, when they when they were the horsemen's group, they did have a chief executive. Mm. Uh, Racers didn't like it very much, did they? No, but I would. I think if you talk to somebody like David Armstrong or Wilf Walsh now, they would actually welcome that the thoroughbred group had an executive function um, because it would help them when they get when they get in a room and negotiate with each other to have the thoroughbred group, the, the five different groupings, and also actually from the, you know, the leading owners group who also sort of have the, their own thoughts about where the sport... If, if you could bring that together and the arguments were uh, and discussions all happened and there was an executive who was not aligned to one, each one of the individual groups within the thoroughbred group, I think that would help help them, and it would certainly help the BHA, and I actually think it would help the race courses as well. But at the, the, the bottom of all of this, until you have your your data sorted the way you want it sorted, and collated the way you want it collated, and everyone ag- can agree on that, it strikes me that you're going to struggle to drive this forward. I, I think I think it's um, you know there there are the short term things that we can do. Um, Everything has to, you know, we're not putting stuff on hold and saying we're not doing anything until we have the data. Yeah. All the discussions need to be, you know, what, what can we do? To, now I think there's an agreement that the, the current product, and I hate talking about racing as a product, but it effectively, you know, it is, um, you know, the Monday to Wednesday racing at the moment is not very compelling. And how do we do something about that in the short term? I don't think you need, to, you don't need to have that all about the data. It's about what, you know, what is the story behind it? What, what do people want to bet on? So you look at um, uh, what Flutter, uh, I don't know whether it was um, Paddy or Seb in the, in the Racing Post this morning said, but they've got a lot of data about what punters want to bet on. That's available to us and they're willing to share it. But this is a new thing. You have to remember that for a long time, the bookmakers, first of all, they once said, kept saying, we want more and more racing. This is the first year where they've actually said, we want less racing. And it's also the first time where they're prepared to share all that customer data about what people want to bet on. Um, what's going to happen now with the white paper, the gambling review white paper? When are we, when are we going to see it, do you think? Well, I, mean, I realise this, this is not your responsibility, but... No, you've not got, at you've all, got, but it, it's absolutely, it is crucial to us. So the, um, we should have a minister announced, so the gambling minister, mm-hmm. who probably will be Damien Collins, will well, be... He, it is at the moment, sort of. Yeah, yeah, but the official announcement mm-hmm. will come, I suspect, Thursday or Friday. Um, we understand that the Prime Minister's office is... There are certain things, so her, her sort of... Uh, what she said in the hustings about people being able to do what they liked in terms of eating, drinking, smoking, gambling. Um, we may hear an announcement about whether the white paper... There, there are rumours that the white paper may be shelved. I'm not actually sure that's a good thing for the sport um, because I think the lack of certainty... Something else will come along. I would lo- I'd love to, Personally, I would love to see it published as soon as possible. Because presumably, if it gets shelved, you are just kicking it down the road 
and the ethical propriety of the sport and gambling will just be scrutinised e- e- even more forensically if there isn't if there isn't a white paper produced. Yeah, and I think that it's it is good for you know a proper discussion about what the policy should be and what you know protection of people who have problem gambling uh, you know disorders. Um, we can't ignore that, and it would be much better that the white paper came out, and then we can lobby about mm. the, the aspects of it that we don't like, and we can support the ones that we do. Uh, are you somebody who feels that racing should separate itself from casino gambling in terms of its own presentation to Parliament? I think we we very strongly, so obviously I led the gambling strategy group, we very strongly made the case that it's a far less addictive product, um, that people, customers engage with it in a different way. But the reality is that you can still get addicted to betting on horse racing. And the numbers of people who bet, so the, the, the overall uh, percentage of people who, who uh, get addicted are lower, but the number of people who bet on horse racing quite high. So it's still, a, it's still a meaningful number, and we shouldn't be, as a sport, looking to profit from those people. And, and given the fact that you've, you've had involvement in all types of gambling, but you've had a strong involvement and still do in technologies that that are, are, are responsible for sort of underpinning casino gaming. Does that in any way make you feel uncomfortable or, or conflicted? I think that the, the industry has changed completely. If you look yeah. at the, uh, the, all the work that has been done on markers of harm and the way that you identify customers, um, look, I'm still invested in an online casino, casino business, so I, and I look very carefully at what they're doing. And... You know, people's accounts get suspended now sort of after 12 minutes play because they're exhibiting markers of harm. It's a completely different industry from even from 18 months ago. But um, you know, I, I, I do worry about any, anybody who is profiting from uh, people who have got gambling addictions. You are a, a punter. You are a trader. You are a, a journalist. You're a poker player. You're, no, you're the chairman of the, of, the, of the British Horse Racing Authority. Which of all of those jobs that you've had is going to serve you best? It's an interesting question. Um, I think, actually, it's from the time that I worked as a strategy consultant. So a lot of the things that we did... Uh, as strategy consultants going into companies, restructuring them. You know that's the most boring answer you could It is given, the most boring you? answer, but it's also... <laughs> <laughs> strategy <laughs> consultancy. You know, a lot of what the BHA needs to do is quite boring, but it's necessary. And um, I, th- I think that, um, you know, we are, we are there to uh, support the sp- sport and um, uh, to help people. Um, you say... Um, Boring but necessary. That's not what you want on the on the headstone. You want Joe Somerez <laughs> Smith, poker champion. Um, best of luck, whatever it says. Thanks very much for talking to me today. Thank you, Nick. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti Cruel Dubai.